0: Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging now let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll up on Vance Road in Chattanooga there kind of behind Sam's club up past the airport you can visit the National Memorial for the unborn I've been there before and it is a um, um, It's a special place to go. It's a sacred site. It was actually once the home of Chattanooga's only abortion clinic, known as Chattanooga Women's Services. During the 18 years that CWS was in business, 35,000 babies in the Chattanooga area were killed on that site. Um, In April of 1993, an opportunity to purchase the building that housed Chattanooga Women's Services uh, came about. And in just a matter of a weekend, uh, churches, Christians, individual families in our area raised over $300,000 to purchase that building out from under the abortion clinic owner, resulting in the fact that the Chattanooga abortion clinic had to close its doors. And we thank God that for the last uh, well, since 1993, for what is that, 20, uh, 27 years, um, has not had an abortion clinic. It's the largest metropolitan area, one of the largest metropolitan areas in the country that does not have an active abortion clinic. I will say this, that if you're ever up off of Lee Highway, it might be worthwhile to stop and, and make a visit to the National Memorial for the Unborn. It is, um, it is definitely, a, a, it's definitely a stop that is, is worthwhile for you to make. I remember saying several months ago that I was weary of living in historic times because it seems like for the last two years, it seems like every time we're always in history, something historic is happening. It's, it's whether it's a pandemic or a, a war or who knows whatever else is coming. It's, it's, it's weary of things being historic. Sometimes you wish it could just be not historic, right? Just, uh, just a normal day, a normal time, But I can safely say that on Friday, June the 24th, that it was a historic day that our generations should not soon forget. I am 43 years old. Until Friday, I had never lived a day that did not have the shadow of Roe versus Wade hanging over the top of it. And of course, you know, nowadays everybody's got to get online and post their thoughts so, so we can get into arguments and fights online about why we think the way that we do. And I restrained myself from, from doing that, and so I've taken some time just to, just to kind of ponder and reflect on the significance of what happened on this past Friday. And there are a few things that, um, a few things came to mind as I was just reflecting. One of the things that comes to mind is that, is that this whole thing doesn't mean that we as God's people are no longer concerned about the issue. It's not like that this is done, now we can, we can put that to rest and we can worry about other things. Uh, I would, as a matter of fact, argue that our state elections just took on brand new significance. Um, we don't pay a lot of attention to those state representatives and those state senators. You know, we're worried about the, the national election. But, but I think what's happened is that now these state elections take on new significance, whether it's the House or the Senate certainly the governor's office, those are all now the new battleground for the cause of life. Uh, Until Friday, it didn't really matter much if we had a pro-life state government uh, because it didn't matter if if we could pass an abortion ban or not. It didn't matter because the federal law was in place, but now it matters more than ever. So pay attention to how we vote, and um, I personally believe life is a, uh, is a non-negotiable position on which we stand. Uh, there's no room there for us. And so, uh, so I, I believe that, um, that all human life matters. And those babies, even though they've not yet been born, uh, certainly bear the image and likeness of our creator and are worthy of dignity and respect. Secondly, I'm reminded of just how important our words are. You know, words matter we need to speak with clarity because this world that we live in doesn't really have the ability to speak with much clarity. For example, you've heard, if you've watched any of the news, and I understand that if you checked out on the news because, man, what the news had to tell us over the last 48 hours has been nothing but bad. Um, And hearing people talk, hearing pundits talk, particularly from a particular side of this conversation, you've heard them talk all about this constitutional right That was taken away. Over and over again, this constitutional right that was taken away. It is interesting we figured out what a woman was in the last 48 hours. It was confusing up until then, but we now know what that is again. But the problem is there's no such thing as a constitutional right to abortion. Justice Alito, in his majority opinion, made this point so clearly. He said, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey, the cases in question are overruled and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected officials. It does not confer the right. It is not mentioned in the text. Words actually do matter. Justice Alito spoke with a tremendous amount of clarity, but we're not really speaking with that much clarity anymore. And then, of course, it's confused. The whole language is confused as it relates to certain uh, issues today. We as the church, God's people, need to speak with absolute clarity because these things actually do matter. Thirdly, this situation puts the church on the line to be a greater help to women who've had this choice removed from them. Let's be very honest. The need for foster care and adoption is about to increase. It has no choice but to increase. Latest statistics have told us that as many as 20% of all pregnancies end in abortion currently prior to the ruling on Friday, which means that there's going to be 20% more children potentially that are brought into the world. And so the need for foster care and adoption is going to increase. Uh, Because let's be honest, I don't really see the behaviors that lead to unintended pregnancies changing. I mean, right? That's not changing. So the situation means there's going to be more and more children that are coming into homes that aren't ready and aren't qualified even to care for them. We're going to see an increased need for special needs ministry because sadly, for the last 50 years, countless children have been aborted who likely had genetic abnormalities that were discovered through prenatal testing. Some countries have bragged that they've eliminated Down syndrome from their nation. And the only way you eliminate Down syndrome is by getting rid of it on the front end. And so we have seen that over and over again. These precious children were never allowed into the world. But now, at least in many states, that is no longer the case. Now more than ever, we need to be supporting our local crisis pregnancy centers. We absolutely need to be involved in these ministries. Chattanooga has a fantastic center that I hope will be a greater partner with in the future. If you're a retired woman or a stay-at-home mom, you today can make a huge impact by giving of your time at that local crisis pregnancy center. It's up by... uh well, I'll show my, my age. It's up by the old Eastgate Mall uh, is, where the, uh, is where our crisis pregnancy center is. You could give a day a week or a few hours a week to make an eternal impact in somebody's life just by volunteering just a, just a little bit of your time. The need for parenting classes, marriage counseling, child care, et cetera, all that is now only going to increase. I'm sure that there are needs that are going to come up in the years to come that we can't even fathom today. Uh, that, that, we, that aren't even on our radar screen today. And sadly, sadly, our nation has gotten a lot angrier in the last 48 hours. Um, the images coming out of some of the protests that are happening are obscene. Social media has been covered with activists calling for church buildings to be burned. And that's the reality in which we are now living. Uh, like Clockwork, Time Magazine even published a hit piece criticizing crisis pregnancy centers because those centers that are actually striving for life and striving to help women in the predicament that they're in are, are, are clearly evil, and, and that's been the driving, motivating force behind this development in our country. Uh, this is where we are. Um, the psalmist addressed this in Psalm verse, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We do need to remember that no matter how angry our nation gets, no matter how angry social media gets, no matter if indeed activists do start targeting churches for that sort of of damage and harm, we do need to remember that Jesus is still very much king. And Jesus reminds us in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would argue that you burn down the church building, the church still exists. You burn down the church building and we will meet and worship Jesus in the smoldering rubble of whatever building may be left behind because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I stand on that based on the authority of God's word. Today, more than ever, we need to be in prayer for our nation, we need to be in prayer for our leaders, and we need to be in prayer for peace in our streets. We rejoice in God's good work this past Friday, but we understand that there is still work to be done. If anything, the battle has moved from a single court case to 51 or 50 different state houses and Congress as a whole. And so now it's brought into a whole new level of, of, of reality for each and every single one of us. So we rejoice that in the state of Georgia, uh, we can, um, in the state of Tennessee, in the state of Alabama, uh, we know our neighboring states are, um, are places where abortion is a lot less friendly than it used to be. And we certainly give thanks to God for that. But it doesn't change the reality for. Hundreds of thousands of young women who are abortion-minded that, uh, that need to know the peace that only Jesus can bring. With that being said, I'd love to take just a moment to pray and give thanks for, um, for what God has done and that God would, um, uh, God would indeed continue to bless as, uh, as we continue to pr- fight for and prevail for life in our civilization. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you today thankful for good news. Thankful, Father, that for the last 50 years, this plague, this assault against our nation has finally found a reprieve. God, I thank you for the justices of the Supreme Court who saw the facade, saw the lies, saw the deceit, and were willing even at their own peril to make a decision that would change history. God, we are grateful for that. And we're grateful for the courage. We pray for protection against those who were willing to stand up so boldly to make this defense for life in our country. God, we certainly pray that as this This strife now comes to Atlanta and Montgomery and Nashville and so many state houses across this nation that your people would not stop contending for life, that your people would not stop supporting and caring for those who were struggling, but that indeed we would recognize that the call upon our lives has only intensified that we can no longer let our guard down in elections. We can no longer trust that, that politicians are going to do what they say. We have to be willing, God, to lead as your people in this regard. Father, I wanna pray particularly for Choices Pregnancy Center, which is our local crisis pregnancy center. Lord, they are doing great work in the Chattanooga area, and we pray, Father, for their protection, we pray, Father, for their provision, Lord. You've done great things in their history, even um, even as the abortion clinic in Chattanooga was put out of business and this crisis pregnancy center was put in its place. Father, I pray for wisdom for its leaders and that you would rally the churches in our community to support them in new and bold and profound ways. Father, we thank you for life. And we pray, Father, that as we contend for it, that you would guide our efforts, that you would see to it, God, that, um, that we continue to see victory in this, in this terrible, terrible Holocaust that's affected our nation for so long. God, we again give thanks for your goodness in this regard. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The picture on the slide behind me is the Arc de Triomphe You've seen it in historical news reports and things like that. It was, it's in France. It was commissioned by Emperor Napoleon to commemorate the French Revolution. Arches like this, and this, of course, is the most influential, Or from ancient Rome. They were invented to, uh, to commemorate victorious generals or significant public events, uh, significant battle wins and things like that. Of course, this one is the most famous as it celebrates the victory of the French Revolution. Uh, I want that image, though, to begin to set the stage for a conversation that we need to have today. We know what a military triumph looks like. We recognize when, politi- when there are political triumphs. But I would ask a question today, what does a triumphant Christian life look like? What does a life look like that is a kingdom Triumph! This morning, we bring our study through the book of Acts to a close. We've spent a year in this incredible book. It's challenged us. Hopefully, it's called us to, to kingdom greatness as God's people, to kingdom greatness as a church. But one of the really fascinating, interesting things about the book of Acts is is that Luke never really brings the character arcs to a close. We talk about character arcs, whether it's a, a character in a movie or a character in a book, it's the journey that the characters go through from from when we first meet them to the lessons they learn in the story to when their story comes to a close. And the book of Acts never brings these things to a close. Now, we know that there are some who die during the journey. We remember men like Stephen who gave their life in service to the early church. But what happened to Peter? I mean, history tells us. History tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified the same way that his Lord was crucified. But, but the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Peter. What, what happened to Barnabas? We met Barnabas in the story, but Barnabas and Barnabas has disappeared from the story. What about Paul? You know, we don't actually get to hear the end of their stories. We sort of have an idea based on what historical records tell us But Luke's point is not to tell us, here's the Apostle Paul, here's his life, here's what he learned, here's his death. That's not Dr. Luke's point at all. The main character in the book of Acts is not Peter or or Paul. The main character in the book of Acts is is really the gospel. It's really the, the Holy Spirit as it propels the gospel forward. And with that in mind, it helps us to really understand the point that Luke is attempting to make as we understand this incredible book. We ended last week with... The shipwreck. Again, if you've been in kids' Sunday school or VBS at some point, you've heard this story. You know about Paul's shipwreck. He was being transported to Rome on board an Egyptian grain freighter. The ship encountered a ferocious storm. He was being tossed and turned by the sea for two weeks. It was dashed to pieces on the reef. We know that all 276 men on board were spared, Chapter 28 begins with a survey of the situation. Turns out they're on a little island called Malta. You can look it up. It's there at the tip of Italy today. To this day, you can visit the island of Malta, and you can see St. Paul's Bay. There's a whole town that's been developed on Malta called St. Paul's Bay. There's even a Catholic church, because this is what the Catholic church did. If there was an important place, let's build a church on top of it. So you can actually go and visit. This church is called the uh, St. Paul's Church of the Shipwreck. Now, I've been in some sermons before where it felt like a train wreck. Uh, I've been in church events that felt like a shipwreck, but this church is actually named the Church of the Shipwreck. Again, go back and read the whole chapter of Acts 28. It's, It's worthwhile for you to do. We just don't have time to read all the verses today. We go back to Malta and we find Paul getting bit by the snake. I, honestly, yesterday I was thinking about just how to how to communicate this, and there was a part of me that almost went and got plywood and built a box and drilled some holes in it, and uh, and made it look like there was a critter inside just to just to see if anybody. You know, I went to go visit my friends on Sand Mountain to uh, to get some pets to bring to church today, but I know that some of y'all wouldn't have found that very funny, and so uh, so I decided not to not to do that. We'd have a lot of nursery volunteers though. Um, <laughs> he gets bit by the snake, and, and the story just says he got bit by the snake and shook it off. I'm like, I mean, if, if you got bit by a snake like on your hand, you just shake it off and go on about your business. You, that's not what you're going to do. I mean, you were going to scream like, like, like babies if, if a snake bit me. I don't care how big the snake was. I don't care if it was a not a venomous snake. If I got bit by a snake, I'm first of all taking a picture. Because I want to know, I want everybody to remember it. But then I'm going to post it on the internet and find out if I'm going to die or not. Uh, you know, that's what's going to happen. And then I'm either going to go to the hospital or, or, or whatever, you know. I mean, I mean, I was mowing some really tall grass yesterday, and my mind was here. I'm thinking, I'm thinking man, I'm, you know, I, I didn't have on boots or anything. I just had on kind of throwaway shoes, and I was in tall grass mowing. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, man, I could live out this story right here, right in my backyard. Thankfully, I didn't. So uh, maybe poison ivy, but we'll find out in a couple of days about that. Uh, so again, I mean, but what you see in all of this story is God continuing to protect Paul while he makes his way to Rome. And just like all the other places that Paul did ministry, he got to work on Malta. He re, we read he meets the governor of the island. His name was Publius. His, his father was dying with dysentery, and Paul healed the man. There were others on the island that, that Paul's gospel ministry brings healing to him. He was there for three months, and the whole time he was there for three months. Paul is engaging in, in real gospel ministry. You find out next that they continue their journey treated like a homecoming of sorts. He's welcomed by Christians when he gets to Italy and the area around Naples. Again, you can see this on maps today. He spends a week there. Christians from all over the area came to visit Paul, as many as far as 40 or 50 miles away. When Paul finally gets to Rome, it's here that we pick up today in Acts chapter 28. We'll begin in verse 17. Acts 28, verse 17. If you're able, please stand with me as I read chapter 28, beginning in verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed. After Paul made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Father, I thank you for this incredible ending to this story that almost comes to us abruptly. We understand and believe that there's a reason for it. Father, I pray that we might understand Paul's life, how he brings this stage of his life to a close, and the triumph in which he walks. Father, I pray that we as your people might seek to live lives that are triumphant for the kingdom of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Well, that's it. Nothing else in the biblical story about the apostle Paul. End of story. That's all. That's all. Now again, we get hints in his letters. You read 2 Timothy, it almost functions like a last will and testament for Paul, but again, it's not in Paul's words, it's not written or it's not written by the eyewitness like Luke was. Early church historians have given us some information, but we have no way of verifying it, no way of knowing whether it's true or not. Tradition says that when Paul was uh, completed these 2 years in Rome, that he was released. He spent another five years, it's believed, doing missionary work with Rome as his base. It's even suggested that Paul went as far to the west as Spain, using Rome as his new base. And there's a lot of historical tradition that supports that theory. But this is as far as we can go in the biblical narrative. Everything else is is up for debate among historians. We can be confident in how Acts chapter 28 verse 31 ends, but we don't have anything beyond that for which we can debate with confidence. And so it would serve us well here to to glean some things from these last words related to Paul's ministry, because there's no doubt that, that even if all we have is the book of Acts, if we don't even have Paul's letters, there's no doubt that Paul was a remarkable giant in the kingdom of God. His faithfulness functions as an inspiration to each and every single one of us, and there's no denying the fact that his life, even if all we have is the book of Acts, was a triumphant example of what kingdom living is all about. And I think it gives us some much-needed perspective for our own lives and calling. And the first thing we would understand here is that this type of triumphant living, this kingdom triumph, is found truly when we take advantage of every opportunity. You can't help but see Paul in chapter 28 maximizing his journey for the kingdom of God. Every time he has an opportunity to talk to somebody, he's talking to somebody. He's, I mean, if you could imagine him today on a trip, it's like he stopped at the Bucky's in Calhoun and he's talking to people in Bucky's while he's getting him a, a, a barbecue sandwich. Like, Let me tell you about my Lord right? I mean, he stops at a, at a rest station on the way to, on the way to Florida, and he, he goes in, and the attendant's in there, and he's like, let me, tell you about, let me tell you about Jesus. Every step along the way, Paul is telling people about his Lord, Jesus Christ. He makes the most of every single opportunity to disciple the saints and evangelize the lost. I mean, again, consider what we just read about in verse 17, Verse 17 begins, and it says a simple phrase, after three days. Again, that, that jumps out in my mind. After three days. What has just transpired for the Apostle Paul? What has just happened? For two years, he was on trial and under arrest in Israel. For two years, I've never been in jail. The longest I've been in jail is two hours. And that was under my own volition. I, I chose to do that. It wasn't, I, it wasn't forced against me. I was in jail for two hours, and I didn't want to stay there. We were doing prison ministry. And I'll never forget when I walk in, when we walked in the prison, the guards at the desk there behind bars, we walked through this big steel door. And let me tell you, when that door shuts behind you, some of y'all been in there on, against your will, and you know what I'm talking about. But when that door closes behind you, it doesn't sound like a door to your house closing. I mean, it's ka-chunk. I mean, it is something. Paul was under arrest and on trial for, for two years. He journeys across the Mediterranean in a months-long journey. He was shipwrecked. i never had that happen before either. He was snake bit. I've never had that happen before either. He had just walked 40 miles from the area of Naples to Rome. I've never done that either. He's setting up shop in a brand new town. I have done that. I can't fathom what that journey must have been like. He's never been to Rome before. You ever been to a town you've never been to before? You, you, you know, your bearings, you don't know where anything is. Man, Paul didn't even know where the closest Walmart is there where he is staying in Rome. Three days is all it takes for him to schedule his very first evangelistic meeting. Like, I'd be okay if Paul took some time to catch his breath, wouldn't you? You know, a a couple weeks, right? A a couple of months even to to catch his breath, to get his bearings. I mean, let the guy take a trip to Lowe's or Hobby Lobby to get the house like he likes it, right? Right? Make the place feel homey. It's Rome. He needs to go see the Colosseum. He needs to see the sights. This is a famous place. Maybe track down some authentic Italian food, get a nice pizza. Certainly you would understand Paul taking some time after the two and a half years or so that he just experienced. Three days. You get the undeniable sense that Paul has a remarkable sense of urgency when it comes to his calling. Uh, I mean, this this sense that, that the clock is ticking. Now, we understand, we read, he's got two more years there in Rome before he stands before the most powerful man in the world, Emperor Nero. But he had no idea if he had two weeks or two months or two years. He didn't have any idea. And he had no idea what the outcome of that meeting was going to be. Was Nero going to have him thrown in the, you know, uh, you know was he going to become a gladiator and be thrown to the lions in the Colosseum? Was he going to be crucified? Who knew what Nero was going to require from him after that trial? This time he was freed. The next time, history tells us, he stood before Nero, he was beheaded. Paul had no sense of whether that would come or not. All this points to the fact that, that we honestly we honestly don't know how much time we have. None of us have any idea how much time we have. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We don't know what we get, so this means that we should live our lives with a sense of urgency. I'm just going to tell you this. If you're not watching the world right now, between wars and, and famines, like, I'm irritated that my coffee creamer's out of stock at the grocery store. It's been out of stock for six months. And my wife will tell you, every grocery store we go into, I'm like a lost child roaming to the back to see if my favorite coffee creamer's in stock. That ain't a famine. There's people in the world today that are starving because of the disruption of the food supply in Europe. That's a famine. We see wars. We see famines. We see disease. We see economic hardship. I'll just tell you, if, if this may not be the four Horsemen of Revelation chapter six, but at least these are the ponies that are getting out stretching their legs, right? Of all generations, we should be keenly aware of the circumstances and the events that are around us. Well, I get it, we live in Flintstone. It's pretty easy to assume about folks, right? I mean, they live in Flintstone. This is the most churched city in America right here, right? So it's easy to assume. I met a new neighbor yesterday. Hadn't met him before. We were talking. And as we were talking, he was kind of giving off the Christian vibe. You know, when you meet somebody for the first time, you know, you, you're, you're casing them, trying to figure out, you know, where are they coming from? You know, what's their thoughts? How do they act? How do they speak? And he was giving off the Christian vibe. He didn't come right out and say, hey, I got saved when I was X years old. He didn't do that. But there was that sense that, okay, this guy's probably solid, but I can't assume, right? So I had to ask the question. I couldn't just assume that he was a Christian. I had to ask the question because life is urgent. I also love the fact that Paul isn't stressing the results. We're told here some believed, but guess what? Some didn't. There were those who were compelled, who heard what he had to say, but then there were those who really didn't like what he had to say. But that's just familiar territory for him. He preached. Some believed, some didn't. That's okay, though. We're not responsible for outcomes. We are responsible for discipleship after they're saved. But our first priority must be, as God's people, triumphant in the kingdom of God, it must be obedience. Because you better believe that if you're somebody who knocks on Paul's door when he's staying in Rome, you're going to hear about Jesus. I heard somebody say one time, I want to be so full of Jesus that I get bit by a mosquito, I want it to fly away singing washed in the blood. <laughs> Man, ain't that true? I mean, that, that's how our lives should be. That's what we have to be about. We can't just assume. It's not safe for us to do so. Secondly, that kingdom triumph, that triumphant life is found when we delight in the things of God. You get these last two verses, and you can't help but read that Paul is really excited about what's happening. We're told that he gets to stay in his own house. He's got a guard with him, but he gets to stay in his own house. He's got his own little apartment that he's living in. He's not really in jail. He's, he, he's kind of got an ankle monitor on if he were in today's world. Like, they know where he's at, but they're not worried too much about him getting away because he's exactly where he wants to be. He's right there in the heart of this empire. He's right where he knows he needs to be. He's right in the middle of God's plan for him. And you can't help but get the sense that he's thrilled about it. He gets to do what he loves doing. It's not a a have to. He's where he wants to be. I I mean, how easy would it be to sit there on house arrest and moan and groan that four years of your life had been spent wasted? I mean, four years. Four years. Under, in the custody of these people. Four years on trial. Four years with a guard attached to you. I mean, how easy would it be? Four years. Paul could have been out visiting the churches. Four years. Paul could have been out planting new churches. Four years that he could have been doing so much more in the field rather than being stuck in captivity. But no, I, I love what's happening now. Now, instead of Paul going, do you read what's happening? People are coming to him. They want to hear what he's got to say. And again, we, we remember that, that all the roads lead to Rome, but all the roads certainly lead away from Rome, too. And so now Paul is, is welcoming them. Do you know you don't welcome people out of bitterness? Right? If, if, if you're irritated that somebody knocks on your door, you're not saying, hey, come on in. If you're irritated that somebody knocks on your door, the most you'll do is open the door and step out on the porch and talk to them, right? I mean, you're not welcoming in. You're not getting them sweet tea. If you're frustrated, irritated, and angry that they're there, there is no hospitality. There is no welcome there. When you welcome people, you welcome people out of joy and delight. I'll tell you, my wife loves welcoming people. Uh, The qualification for an elder in the New Testament requires that I be hospitable, but I'll just say that I love welcoming people less than she loves welcoming people. She is, is, it delights her when people come by. Paul is delighted to be doing exactly what God wants him to do at this time. There is joy, there is excitement, there is enthusiasm. He is thrilled to be where God wants him to be. And the outcome is irrelevant because every single day he is doing God's work. I just want to ask a real honest question. Do you delight in the things of God? Do you delight in the things of God? That's a serious question. Yeah, pastor, I delight in the things of God. Do you? Do you delight in the things of God? Do you delight in his church? Do you delight in his word? Do you delight talking about the things of God? Yeah, it's troubling we live in a day where there's so many people who profess faith in Jesus, but so few people who actually enjoy the things of Jesus. I mean, there's all kinds of people that say they're Christians, but how come we can live in a place where there's so many people who are Christians, yet our churches can still be so empty on Sunday mornings? It just doesn't makes sense. It doesn't, jihal is the theological term of the day. Finally, we understand that this triumphant life of the kingdom is found when we embrace the spirit of Acts chapter 29. Now, look at the next chapter. The astute ones among you are already figuring out something. You say, the next chapter in my Bible starts with R and ends with omens, Okay? And you say, Pastor, I think you got the wrong translation. If you're telling us to turn to Acts chapter 29, then it may be that, that your Bible is different from my Bible. And the fact of the matter is, is that you would be correct if that were your assessment. There is no Acts chapter 29. What happens next, though? He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and hindrance. And then the next verse, you could almost see it saying, and then two years had passed and Emperor Nero called Paul up and he stood trial before Nero and then the story could continue. But that's not at all what Luke does, is it? He ends it abruptly right here. And again, some people have tried to make the case that, well, it was a scroll and the last part of the scroll must have ripped off because there's more to the story. But that's not the case at all. Because what happens at the end of Acts chapter 28 in that abrupt ending is exactly the place where your story and my story picks up. Because right? This is what happens. This is the outcome. This is the outflow of Paul's work and the kingdom's work in the book of Acts is that we are here in Flintstone, Georgia talking about Jesus today because Paul was in Rome for two years telling people about Jesus then. If he'd gone a different direction, Beijing might be where the center of the kingdom of God seems to be. And that's not the case at all. We're in Flintstone talking about Jesus, I firmly believe because Paul was in Rome talking about Jesus. And so that is where we pick up today. And we continue to do the work in the spirit of Acts 29. We continue to bring the gospel to our neighbors and the gospel to the nations. Our goal is Paul's goal. As long as we're given breath, we breathe Jesus. As long as we're given breath, we breathe Jesus. And when our breath is taken away, we see Jesus. That's a life worth living right there. That's a life worth celebrating. Every breath we have is about Jesus. And when our breath is taken away, we see Jesus. And our circumstances during that time will change We'll go through hardships. We'll go through victory. We'll go through sickness. We'll go through health. We'll go through prosperity. We'll go through poverty. We'll go through all those things. But what we see over and over again in God's story is that our circumstances matter far less than our faithfulness in the midst of them. And so wherever your life takes you, whatever circumstances in which you find yourself, like Paul, make it be about Jesus. If there's anything for us to take from a year in this incredible journey, everywhere you go, make it about Jesus. Be obedient every step, every place, every direction, every decision. Make it be about Jesus. But I said something earlier, and I need to say it again. I didn't want to assume about my neighbor's spiritual condition. And I want to make the same, don't want to make the same mistake in this room today. I don't want to assume about everyone in this room either. Again, it's safe, to, it's safe to, to understand that a majority of us gathered here today are faithful followers of Jesus. But there are some here today that if I were to assume that about you, that assumption would be wrong. And I wanna give you that opportunity today to surrender your life to Jesus. It's not hard. It's not a complex process. It's a simple matter of recognizing who Jesus is, recognizing who we are. It's a simple matter of understanding that we sin and we come up short of God's perfect standard. There's nothing we personally can do about it, but recognizing that God so cares about you, that God so loves you, that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you and that he didn't stay dead, he rose again. It's a simple matter of, of, of believing in our hearts that Jesus is Lord, confessing with our mouths that God raised him from the dead. It's a simple matter of putting our faith and trust in Jesus for our salvation. Some of you have not done that. Some of you walk through life, and you wonder. You have the question. You have the doubts. You you, you try to think back to that emotional experience. You try to think back to that time when you were baptized as a little bitty kid, and you think that those experiences are what is going to get you into heaven, but the reality is, is that those experiences will not get you into the kingdom. Only Jesus will. And you have to ask the question today, I'm not living a triumphant kingdom life because I'm not really even in the kingdom. And today, more than anything, you need to give your life to Jesus. In just a few moments, we're gonna have a time to sing and respond. And during that time, I would invite you today to say, Pastor, I'd like to trust Jesus. I'd like to give my life to Jesus Christ today and as, as Savior and Lord. I'd like to surrender myself to Jesus. I would love to have that opportunity to have that conversation with you today and help you see who Jesus is and what he's done just for you. I'm going to pray, and as we prepare to sing, I'm going to invite you to respond to that. So uh, would you join me together? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the apostle Paul, for his life, for the triumphs that he experienced in the kingdom of God. Thank you for his example to each and every single one of us. Lord, we understand that just as Paul could not assume about those who knocked on his door in Rome, that we should not assume either. And so we understand that there may be those in this room today who more than anything right now, they need to give their life to Jesus, that they would need to trust Jesus alone for salvation. They're counting on an emotional experience. They're counting on a a baptism. They're counting on a prayer that was prayed, but they understand that they've never submitted their life to Jesus. And in these next few moments, God, I pray that they would hear you calling them clearly and that they would recognize what needs to happen that they need to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. The Bible says that anyone who's in Christ is a new creature. And today, God, we know that you can make new creatures. So let us not assume about anyone, but make the invitation to all. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, we recognize that we want to live in triumph for the kingdom of God. And as we look to Paul and we model our lives after his, may we take advantage of the opportunities set before us, whether it be opportunities in our workplace, opportunities in the volunteer organizations in which we're a part, opportunities in our classrooms, opportunities on our sports teams, that we would take advantage of every opportunity that people would look at us and they would say, that person knows Jesus. And they would understand that there's a difference. Let them not have to assume, let our lives and our testimony bear witness to who it is that we know, and to whom we belong. Father, I pray that as we conclude this journey today, that it would inspire each of us to live out radically obedient lives to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, indeed, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, God, I pray now in this time of response that you might move in our hearts, call the lost to be saved, and that the saints might be renewed in their dedication to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.